welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. This is episode number 46. Thanks for joining me today. We are continuing the last 100 yard series. Now this is the third episode in the last 100 yard series. So if you're just joining us and this is your first episode, I recommend either before or after you listen to this podcast that you go check out the other two episodes, episode number 44 and episode number 45. We are introducing something new to the podcast. Now, there's a handout or attachment available for you to download in the episode notes. Download that document or pull it up for your references so that you can be on the same page as we go throughout this podcast. So go ahead, pause the podcast, grab that info sheet, come back and join us. We have a full show for you today, so let's not waste any more time and let's get into the last 100 yards. The last 100 yards is an experience like no other, an in-depth series that focuses on different issues and topics in ways we never have before from a 360 perspective. Join me as we investigate topics affecting sterile processing and packaging with the help of scientists, manufacturers, engineers, and sterile processing professionals just like you. Partner with me and the KIPP committee as we explore the last 100 yards. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I'm here with some folks from the KIPP committee, and we are unlocking the mysteries behind packaging. So let's talk about packaging. So my first question is, what is packaging? Hey, John. It's really exciting to be here today. As a packaging nerd, I'm super excited for this uh, (laughs) podcast today. We're going to go through some of the terminology and what goes into it. But packaging, and I'm going to give you my, my dictionary definition here. Packaging is part of a whole for the product when it comes to keeping a product safe and effective on the market. The packaging really functions as an integral part of it to keep the product safe until point of use, and it aids in communicating important information to the users. Okay, But what that all kind of breaks down into is it's keeping the product from incurring any physical damage and any sort of biological contamination through shipping and storage until the user is ready to use it. So to talk a little bit about what goes into packaging and the design of it, the packaging engineers, when we're looking at a product, we really try to take into account the user needs as well as product needs. And it's a balance because what might be needed for the user, we have to think about what's also needed for the product. We know that sometimes 
you know, things are small. So we want to try to keep the package small, but then it's hard for the users to open it because, you know, how do you get a grip on something or you might have wet hands. So we're really trying to focus on balancing product needs as well as user needs. After we get that balance sort of where we want it to be and we have that design, the next thing that goes into this packaging is there's a lot of testing. We really go into test mode and we spend months going through that phase of our project. Um, when we're going through that testing, we follow a lot of standards that are already out on the market, including some form of, a sh of simulating our shipping. So we look at what the environmental and the physical hazards are during shipping. And then we also simulate time. And that time that we simulate, we do both a real time and an accelerated time. Um, that will help us to support that shelf life that you would see for product on those labels. When you're going through your study, the design and development, one thing I didn't hear was repetitive handling of the product. As a manufacturer, are you aware of all the handling that goes with the product? You know, the product comes to the facility and it may be on crated, you know, on a dock or in a sterile processing department, it varies um, in a breakdown room. The products are removed from their shipping containers in the breakdown room placed on the shelf. Once on the shelf, they may then be picked to go into a case cart. Now, if they go to a case cart, they may then get repetitive handling because it's possible that the package could travel up to surgery on a case cart and not be used and come back down, be placed on the shelf, and then have that process repeat itself. Or it, it could go to a nursing unit, not be used, return back to sterile processing, placed back on the shelf. We also... You know, other repetitive handling is that we're inventorying our items, we're counting them. Um, they may go on patient procedure carts and be returned. So there's a lot of repetitive handling of a product that happens once it's received into the hospital. And I'm just curious, is that taken into account, you know, when you design and develop a packaging material? You know, Sue, that's a great question. And you know, a couple months ago before really getting involved in KIPP, I would have said not really, not at all. But over the past couple months, you know, with the with that survey that we did, I think we're starting to think about it more. But that's a very small group of us. Realistically, our standards don't cover the that last hundred yards that we talk about. They really only cover to the point that the product gets to the dock at the hospital or the healthcare facility. So a lot of our testing pretty much stops for it getting to the, when it gets to the storage, you know, facility. So some of our, some of our testing, we, you know, we can kind of correlate to some of that handling, but for the most part, that's an area that we have found over the last couple, the last couple months that there's a gap. And this KIP committee is really trying to close that gap because we know that there's additional hazards that can incur from that repetitive handling. Yeah, from, and I remember the survey, um, numerous uh, answers were that, yes, the items are repetitively handled. And I think one said up to 16 times possibly. And so, that is something that blew our mind because we, we figured that even as packaging engineers and sure our standards only go so far, we figure that there's probably some level of handling. I mean, inventorying or something like that. There's probably some level of multi-handling, but I don't believe that 
anyone knew how much multi-handling was really going on, how many times these products were repetitively placed to placed on a cart, moved out of that room, maybe where they were stored, sent back and then re-put on the shelf and stuff. And that's all handling, whether it be on a cart, carrying in someone's hand, that's all stuff that we weren't stuffed in a pocket. We weren't fully aware of how often it occurs. And it's something that we really are going to try to focus on getting the information out to the packaging engineers and the manufacturers that this is something that we need to focus some more time on when we're doing our development phase. Boy, that'd be great. And that's why I love the collaboration at this KIPP committee, because as a user, we just assume that manufacturers were aware of the repetitive handling that goes into the packaging and that that, that is all factored into the package. But as manufacturers, um, you apparently did not take that into consideration. We take some, but not, you know, not 16X, right? (laughs) There's there's definitely room for improvement. You know, we try our best with picking the right materials or, you know, whether it be a rigid container. So those like clear trays uh, and, and we're using trays as like a medical device manufacturer. I'm using trays in like those clear PETG trays that might have a Tyvek lid on them or some other sort of plastic foil lid or something, you know, that's what we would define a tray as. But, you know, whether it's that kind of material or a poly bag, a polyfilm uh, laminate material for a pouch, you know, we, we try to take that into account that it's a durable material. But, you know, sometimes we don't always know all of what our users are doing, how many times they're touching it. Yeah, so see, that, that, that's a really good point, actually. Um, you know, in terms of a process or designing a packaging system, we can only design packages uh, with what we know the packaging will go through. So repetitive handling is something that definitely needs to be considered. To put it into co- context, you know, if we boil it down, there's kind of four elements of packaging that packaging engineers consider. That, that's containment, protection, communication, and utility. So first and foremost, whatever the product is, in this case, it's a medical device or a healthcare product, can the package contain the product? That's the first element. The second one, kind of pointing to what Kat was mentioning earlier, is protection. Can the package maintain the integrity of the device, the sterile barrier system, to the point of use for aseptic presentation? But before we even get to that last 100 yards, we got to make sure that the package can, um, again, maintain sterile barrier integrity and device functionality through, let's say, a UPS truck or a FedEx truck, just some small personal carrier. If you can imagine how many times that package or box is dropped, um, what it's feeling in the back of a, a road in Michigan with all the potholes, um, maybe in uh, Colorado up in the mountains, all the different pressure differentials. There's a lot of considerations um, surrounding climactic conditioning, drops, and different hazard modes that packages will feel. The next one is communication. You know, packaging also considers labeling. So how quickly can a user interpret um, what a package is trying to communicate? In the consumer product goods realm, packaging is really the silent salesman, right? But in the healthcare industry, packaging from the labeling perspective is really trying to communicate different things. What's the expiration date? You know, how many times can this device be used? Things of that nature. So communication through the labeling, but also things that are a bit intrinsic or passive. So for instance, are there any design features that 
point the users to different opening features or, or maybe instructions that are directly printed on the packaging of how to use the device or the package. And then lastly, utility. Utility is almost like a convenience factor. So from a design standpoint, think of a Chevron pouch. The Chevron pouch is a design feature that allows a user to open a peel pouch consistently um, and, and more easily. So, so those are kind of the things that packaging engineers think through when, when developing packaging. And then to Kat's point, we have a whole list of standards to uh, kind of vet out the different designs to make sure they can achieve all the requirements of those four elements. But furthermore, there, there's still a lot that we can unhash with the healthcare practitioners and, and kind of understand how to develop packaging better. Well, that's really interesting, Austin. I wasn't aware that there's so much went into the package. As a user, the package shows up at my facility and I just assume everything is sterile and it was easy to do. But I see there's so much that really goes into it. A lot of engineering, a lot of thought goes into each package. So, Sue, Ed, I have a question for you. As Austin was giving us the rundown of all those things, he mentioned something. And as a packaging person, I automatically knew what it was. But I have a question for you and uh, Kevin here. When Austin said a Chevron a Chevron pouch, did you know what that means? Yes, the uh, thumb opening at the very top. It's the way that it's sealed so that it e opens easily to aseptically present the product. That's yeah, it's, it's the design of it. Yeah. That's good, Sue, because I'll just say in all honesty, I didn't know what that meant until I yeah. started working with Healthmark. Uh, when I worked in the operating room, I would have never known what that meant, it, at least the terminology after it being explained. Yes, I could understand that and and mm -hmm. go back to my days in the OR and, and realize, oh, yeah, there's a lot of different packaging and peel pouches with that kind of design. But I would have never known that in the operating room. <laughs> so the uh, Chevron pouch is is the triangle seal at, at the top of the pouches. But Sue, you, you bring up a really good point with that thumb notch. So, you know, maybe that's one of those passive features that actually shows, hey, you should be opening the pouch from the top. So again, different things. And I think we'll show an image later in the podcast or maybe have a link to, to kind of show what we're talking about here a bit better. We actually have a handout prepared that we're going to go ahead and link in the podcast notes. So anybody who wants to bring it up and listen and follow along as we're talking about things, we do have images of all of these things. So you'll see in in that handout when we talk about a Chevron pouch, well, the thing that we're pointing to that we call the primary layer, that's that triangular design that's at the top, right above where the label is. That's what we would consider the chevron and the thumb notch that Sue is talking about. That is that uh, little like semicircle there that is usually a cutout of some sort that would help to kind of pull the two layers apart. Austin, you had mentioned something that really um, perked me up when you were talking about the packaging and the transportation testing that you do on the packaging to make sure that it gets to the facility safely. You talked about shock and temperature and the modes of transportation. In some healthcare facilities, we transport items between facilities. And so those are things we don't always take into consideration. So I'm glad that as manufacturers, you do look into the temperature, the humidity, the shock of the packages. It's something that we could probably use in healthcare facilities, that same type of uh, research that you've done. Maybe we could borrow some of that. 
Absolutely. And to, to kind of pick on climactic conditioning a bit, um, it's, it's interesting. A lot of medical device manufacturers subject their packaging system to, you know, Arctic weather, um, let's say in the dead of winter in Michigan, um, some hot and humid temperatures, uh, maybe in the dead of center, summer for Texas, um, and then maybe a desert climate. So really high heat, but low humidity. So all different things. Um, but how does that translate to in between hospitals? I, I think that's what you're getting at, right? It is. It is. At Amy, we are working on a new technical information report at TIR. It's TIR 109. And the question comes up quite often, you know, what temperatures and humidities and even shock can a package take? Not just the ones that are commercially prepared, but also the ones that we pr prepare in healthcare facilities. So we're hoping that we can take a lot of the research already performed by manufacturers and use that with this TIR. I think that'd be a great resource to both packaging engineers and healthcare professionals. I, think so. I agree, Sue. And if you ever have any any of those issues or anyone ever has any of those questions that come up when they're trying to find out, you know, can this package withstand that level of transport or those temperatures, I'm sure if, I'm sure reaching out to any of us or even the, the manufacturer, they would be able to provide you some of that. They might have to redact some information from their reports, mm -hmm. but they would probably be able to provide a report that shows that they did the testing to you know, those Arctic conditions in Michigan or the, you know, hot and humid conditions of Texas or the extreme hot in Arizona, they may be able to give you that information that shows that they've already sub subjected these materials and they know that they can withstand those. That's great information. So as a user in a hospital, if I am going to be shipping packages, you recommend that we contact the manufacturers to see if it is in fact able to be shipped in my environment that I live in. I think that's, I think that's great. If you, if you can, you know, a lot of times I know people, people are very busy and stuff and that can sometimes get, you know, passed off on who needs to contact who, but going back to the manufacturer and just giving a, a quick question, I think that's, that's going to help because the other thing that happens there is when the user contacts customer service, it sort of flags customer service to, ask that question to the engineers or to pass on that information of, hey, they want to ship it. And that gets the ball rolling for, you know, what do you mean they want to ship it somewhere else? How many times are they doing this? So it goes back to that helping to enlighten the, the manufacturers as well, that not only do you, could you benefit from that information provided up front, mm -hmm. but also that we need to be aware that this is occurring. Absolutely. So from this conversation, it could help the users in the hospital, but also for at Amy, the TIR 109, the external transportation uh, mm -hmm. TIR, you know, we are working with manufacturers um, and some of you are, or some of your companies are involved asking those questions and requesting research and input to help develop this TIR so that the users in the healthcare facility can make better decisions when shipping our products between healthcare facilities. Absolutely. So Austin, you also said something that I want to touch on, and that was labeling and identification. Mm -hmm. When I worked in the OR and when I worked in sterile processing, you know, what, what was important to me is to find the expiration date, but it's almost like you had to read hieroglyphics, you know, with <laughs> all the different symbols and all the different numbers. <laughs> on the package just to find uh, what you're looking for. So can you kind of explain some of those different symbols and the things you're going to find on a package? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, there's you're absolutely right in terms of symbology being confusing in in terms of healthcare packaging. It's almost like going to a, a food package and looking at the nutrition facts label um, or area and trying to understand, you know, how many carbs are in this or protein, grams of protein or fat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so on a healthcare package, a lot of the times you'll see a lot of, I'll, I'll call it pillars of the um, package. And the big thing in our industry is traceability. So some of the things you'll see on a label could be the manufacturer. Um, who do I go to to contact if I have any questions about this package or device? You'll see reference part numbers so that you can indicate, hey, I'm looking at this specific product. So again, traceability, a manufacturer could go back and see, hey, this is sterilized to this modality. Let's say it's ethylene oxide or EO. Um, you'd be able to tell what the expiration date is, the lot number, things of that nature. In terms of symbology, um, I won't get into it too much in this podcast, but there are standards out there really trying to standardize how healthcare symbols are portrayed on packaging systems. Because um, to your point, a lot of times it is confusing, even trying to find what the expiry date is on a package. Again, I won't get into this too much, but you know, I, I think I read an MSU article once, research article, indicating that most symbols on a package are actually interpreted as the exact opposite of what a symbol is intended to mean. So that's any indication of how confusing labels can be. You know, I think there's a lot of room for improvement out there. And John, just to touch on one, one little bit there too, for anyone that is wondering what is that expiration symbol there's two symbols that sort of look very similar and you'll see one where it they're little they look like little hourglasses and Mm -hmm. the one that looks like the time has run out that all of the sand or whatever would be on the bottom that's more that it's more of like half full that is the symbol that if you're wondering what that is that's our expiration date symbol um and that like austin mentioned there are standards out there for the different symbols um iso 15223 is definitely one of them that has probably the majority of the symbols of the symbols that we use in medical device some of them they're trying to really move away from having words inside of the symbol like you've probably seen ref or lot or sterile those are symbols that were approved sort of way back when and they were grandfathered into this idea that um, you can't use words because not everybody speaks, you know, English that they would understand what lot or ref or sterile is. So there's some that have been sort of grandfathered in, but for the most part, they have symbols that ISO groups have gone through and, and done some level of research on and some focus groups with to make sure that they are somewhat understandable, but then the trick is when you have things like manufacture or made in or you have expiration date or made on date type thing like that, when they're almost identical and it's just where the, the symbol is filled in, that does get really confusing. Yeah, I have to admit, I've been confused by that a few times where I was looking <laughs> for expiration dates just like John and I found the manufacturing date and all of a sudden I'm like mm-hmm. panicking because, you know, that was two years ago and... Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, thought I, I thought my my product was expired when it wasn't, but uh, usually I figure it out before you know I do anything drastic. But um, but yeah, it's something that I definitely have tripped over in the past. Yeah, and we have barcodes and stuff on on labels now, but I don't know if it's happening with you guys. We are as you know, in a manufacturing standpoint, we're ha- 
the different guidelines are having us put multiple barcodes on them, which is really confusing. But some of those barcodes do have manufacturing date and use by date. So that expiration date built into it. I don't know if those are helpful for you, but um, if they are, I mean, that they're kind of built into those barcodes. I think there's so few people out there using barcodes at the point of use. So like in the operating room, at least yeah. in my experience, we were not we were not using barcodes. Not that that wouldn't be a great tool to use. Uh, mm -hmm. Just was not uh, being practiced. Well, fun fact, there was a huge FDA initiative and EU is going through part of it now for UDI, unique device identify, uh, identifier. And that's to mm -hmm. not only have a like, you know, that unique device identification, which has a, you know, 13 digit number that would tell you if you could understand what those those numbers meant, it would tell you who the manufacturer was and what product it was all built into that number. But then it also had uh, regulations on the barcode. So then you had to add this new barcode and now Europe is going through it as well. So it's really good information to hear that even after all of that years of putting those in, that it's not quite implemented at the hospitals yet to be as useful as it was intended. Sorry to burst your <laughs> bubble. <laughs> I was, I'd be lying if I said that wasn't a couple years worth of work for me. <laughs> John, I'm really glad you brought up the point of, of communication, though. It kind of gets down to the design element of, of packaging again. If, if the package isn't a Rosetta Stone that can be understood in different contexts, so the operating room, maybe a sterile storage area, even an ambulance environment, um, it's not doing its job all the way. So you know, having these discussions through the KIP committee is really good to help feed and understand what those design inputs need to be. Yeah, I think even adding uh, just some education, some modules to uh, healthcare workers about packaging and sterile packaging and all of that. I mean, you wouldn't believe the things that, you know, you see and that become normal in an operating room. You see people tossing packages across the room to each other. You know, <laughs> someone's at the case cart and they're tossing it over to their scrub tech or throwing it down on the bed. I mean, there's a, or putting it under their armpit. I mean, it's like oh, no. you see a lot of different things happening in the operating room that would just kind of blow your mind. You know, it happens. I'm just saying or dropped on the floor and opened up anyway, that kind of stuff. So it would be great for uh, there to be, you know, something from manufacturers education wise, like the do's and don'ts and all of that stuff and the why's behind it. And, you know, you think some of this is common sense and unfortunately it's not. <laughs> it's funny you bring that up. I remember in the survey, some people had also alluded to the same thing that they would see a package dropped and still be used or it was placed in the pocket or under an arm and still used. Yep. And Ke happens. Kevin, that's interesting. Um, with the, with the survey results, Sue mentioned the repetitive handling study before really mm -hmm. we're looking to execute a study um, in September actually to identify, is there a problem? I, I think we can all say in this call that, <laughs> you know, repetitive handling is a problem. If you drop a package on the ground and pick it up to reuse it, it could be a problem. But having a study to objectively show that, you know, maybe it's contamination rates that could add uh, or influence results of HAIs or an increase of HAIs. I think some data like that is, is probably the best way to educate the users um, in terms of why you shouldn't be 
conducting some practices that, that aren't the best. Is, is that accurate? I, I think so. The other thing that it may bring up is that as a user, when you see the effects of repetitive handling, maybe as users, we could think of ways to transport the supplies without handling them as much. You know, perhaps putting them in bins or doing, you know, not ordering them as often if they're not used. Maybe we need to look at our um, ordering patterns. You know, if I'm always ordering an instrument or a tray and I'm not using it, maybe I don't need to order it at all. Um, and if I am always sending up um, items like every size catheter and then I have to take it back and, re, you know, put it back on the shelf for the next day to do it again, maybe I could just have a box with all of those items in there. So as users making us aware that this is an issue, maybe as users, we could also find ways to, to better work with our supplies to prevent the contamination of them. Yeah, Sue, so, I mean, anything that we can do on either end that can help to minimize any potential risk of a biological contamination, that's really just going to be a win for everybody. You know, we know that it's going to be impossible to have, you know, the, the products that we're making sit on a shelf until the actual point of use and never touched. You know, that's just not realistic in today's, in today's world and everyone's busy and, you know, things happen. And, you know, the reality is a lot of these products are also expensive. So if something drops on a on the ground and, you know, it was an accident, we don't, want to just throw it away as a, as the packaging engineer we might say yeah sure don't don't risk that but the reality is it might be an expensive product it might be the only one that you have and we there may not be time to get another one or something and yeah these pinholes that could happen the chan the defects that can happen are really difficult to see and we can help to provide some insight into how to how to find them if they're there. Sometimes they're not always visible to the naked eye, but we can definitely, you know, provide some insight into that, but then also, you know, work with you as the users to understand what really is going on when those events happen mm -hmm. in, in your minds and stuff to try to figure out how to mitigate any risk of additional biological contamination. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Kat, it's funny, um, when you do over validation studies, you know, ASTM F1886 is a standard that's commonly used. And yep. the standard prescribes 75 microns as the limit of detection for how um, small of a pinhole, like you mentioned, you can see with mm -hmm. the naked eye. I'll tell you what, 75 microns is like three hairs. That's very small. So putting myself in, in Sue or Kevin's shoes, I can imagine if you drop a package picking it up and trying to see um, is there a pinhole in a rush, that's got to be incredibly difficult, <laughs> especially with different lighting scenarios. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are really good points. And I'll tell you, you mentioned the rush of things. I'm like when you're talking a busy OR environment, uh, you know, there are cases and there are surgeries and surgeons where they work at a pretty slow, easygoing pace. And that's okay, but that's not all the time. There are a lot of surgeons in rooms that are working at a very fast pace. And, uh, you know, a lot of the times the clinicians are not checking the packages or if they are, it's in such a hurried state that it would be very easy to miss any of those types of pinholes and things like that. And Kat mm -hmm. brought up about the cost. Like, what a great point. I mean, I that happens so much where you know, an item falls on the floor and, you know, 
nobody wants to throw it away. They feel like they're wasting it and mm-hmm. that most likely the package is still fine and whatever. But those are things that, uh, you know, I think we all need to take into account, whether it's as a user or obviously a manufacturer and packaging expert. Um, those are great points. Yeah. And, and I hope that we're not scaring anyone out there thinking that, oh, gosh, the packaging is so fragile that, you know, one little drop or, or one one additional handling is going to cause there to be pinholes all over the packaging. Realistically, it's probably not the case. We, we do quite a bit of testing that goes into it beforehand. Not the testing is not typically done on the individual, like the shipping of it or the handling and all that isn't typically done on the individual one. It's usually done on a larger package. So what we might see is like a shipping container, but even within those shipping containers, they do see a fair amount of shock, how they're packaged and handled when they're getting put into those. So the packaging does see handling when we're doing our testing and then the testing itself, you know, we're a lot of times we're, you know, sub, submerging them in water to see if when we inflate the package, if there is a bubble and, you know, because that's how realistically we thought we determine if we have any sort of pinhole, because like Austin mentioned, 75 micron is very small. So even someone who has done this for many years, sometimes we look at something, we're like, wow, that actually doesn't look good. And it passes. And other times we don't notice the little pinhole. So we do a lot of testing and we try to make these packages as robust as possible, but there are still, I will say that there are still some gaps and we want to try to teach best practice as much as we can and design better if we can. Agreed. And I I think it gets back the overall message. I think in what I'm hearing at least is there's a lot of room for improvement, right? You know, speaking of that rush of the healthcare practitioners, um, even thinking about packaging engineers switching over to our realm, a lot of design projects are really quick and iterative. So in, in terms of accountability, that's where this type of conversation here today is fantastic because we're, we're hearing the pain points or the worries of the healthcare practitioners. And then as packaging engineers, you know, we're understanding what you guys go through more and more of to understand how we should develop packaging to be more precise for the actual intended use if that makes sense. It absolutely does. So we've sort of talked about what goes into the packaging and sort of like we even kind of touched on, you know, what is a Chevron and what the different types of packaging are. Hannah, can you give us just a little bit of an overview for everybody? Like what are the different types of packaging that you all use uh, when you're developing packaging? Yep, absolutely, Kat. So on the manufacturing side, there are three main types of packaging that we identify with in industry, those three being primary, secondary, and tertiary. So we'll dive into the function of each layer here in a second, but to start with giving an idea of examples of each layer, I'll start with primary packaging. This is what's coming in direct contact with the product. And a couple popular examples of these within medical device packaging tends to be um, thermoform trays, rigid or semi-rigid trays, pouches, those chevron pouches we mentioned, or gusseted pouches are pretty popular as well. And then also sterile wraps and more flexible packaging like bags and vented flexible formats. The secondary packaging 
format tends to be an exterior level outside of the primary package, which kind of just further protects the product. These levels commonly include shelf cartons, those white SBS box materials that sit on the shelf. The third format being tertiary packaging, um, which is more so used to protect the product and um, utilized within shipping and transport outside of the healthcare facilities. Um, these are going to be those corrugated or brown cardboard boxes that are kind of commonly viewed as the generic packaging format. Um, and then sometimes users might often see a uh, protective packaging format being included. These commonly are within the sterile pack, those being mounting cards or tip protectors just to better deliver the product or even foam or void fill being included in the tertiary shipping box. Yeah, so there's a lot of different components that go into packaging. So if you're ever wondering why that extra piece of plastic, you know, was sitting on the on the tip of it, or why was this, you know, what we would call a backer card or a sleeve, you know, keeping it in place, there's a lot of times there's a reason we put those in there. It's sometimes it's for helping to transfer the product onto the state onto the sterile field you know if you've got a really small screw and you just you know want to dump it out of a pouch that can roll around but if you are if it's on a you know a card of some sort the backer cards that we just mentioned you know you can kind of open it and push it and dump it onto the sterile field and it sort of slides so that it doesn't roll off um, so there's a lot of different packaging that we develop as part of the manufacturer that you know, there is a function and, and we hope that they're useful for you all as well. I'm interested in the secondary cartons. When we get items in the hospital, one of the things we do is really protect our sterile storage department. Um, in sterile storage, it's important that we maintain the integrity of the packages. And so the entire environment, we watch it very closely. We, you know, people are only permitted in our sterile storage that are in surgical attire uh, we monitor the temperature and the humidity, and we definitely do not allow shipping cartons in or anything that has been exposed to the outside. And you're talking about secondary containers, you know, and these are secondary cartons. And as a user, sometimes I'll get a carton in and I think, hmm, has this been exposed to the outside or has it not? I don't know. And if I'm not sure, I will not bring it into the department. So as... I think there's a communication gap here as users. We don't always know what is the secondary container and, you know, what is the outer container. In, in a hospital, that's a, it is really important that we know the difference. Definitely, we know the um, corrugated boxes absolutely positively mm -hmm. cannot go into sterile storage. A secondary container, um, the cartons that are like the cereal boxes, if they were placed mm -hmm. in a corrugated box, they're probably okay to come into the sterile storage area. But again, if we don't know that it was included in a corrugated box, we probably would not let it in, thinking that perhaps this box was exposed to the outside environments, therefore it cannot come into the sterile storage area. So how would, how would I know what is a secondary carton? Sue, that's, that's a great point that you that you have and I, I can take this one for a little bit so I think a good rule of thumb 
for us is if the product has the label on it, like the actual information, like we were talking about that has that expiration date and the reference number, if it has that label on it, or it has artwork on it to some extent to help identify the product, chances are that's not the exterior layer. That's something that's going to be internal and protected because that those components, whether it be artwork or information on a label, those are things that we also do testing on. Because obviously, if we're going to spend the money and the time to put the artwork on it, we want to make sure that all of that lasts through that distribution. So we try to protect that when we are shipping the product. So if you see that sort of, um, you know, pretty artwork that has all the design on it, or it has that product information that's printed onto the carton, chances are that's an internal layer, that that is going to be that secondary packaging, that shelf carton that more than likely was not exposed to any any sort of uh, shipping conditioning as far as like the, the environmental side of it. And that, you know, and that really helps when we we're talking about repetitive handling to know that I do have the secondary carton that mm -hmm. I could just take it from maybe the breakdown room and put it mm -hmm. directly on the shelf without emptying all the contents in that carton. Perhaps there's, you know, 10 items in there. And yeah. that's one less repetitive handling that I'm doing. If I could simply take that secondary carton from a breakdown area and then place it onto the shelf, knowing that it is a, a safe outer packaging. So that really does help a lot. Yeah. And I will say, so when we're doing our testing, almost all the times, if we are creating a carton for the product, we do our testing with the intention that it is stored in that carton. So all those the shelf life studies that we do, we do that with them in those cartons. So we will actually store it at the intended conditions for the length of time that's needed to prove that shelf life. And then we do testing afterwards after we take it out. But that the intention when there is a carton is that it is to be stored with the carton. We know that space is sometimes limited and that or a lot of times limited mm -hmm. and that becomes a factor. But anywhere where that shelf carton can stay with the product, that helps because it does do product containment, but it's also protection. So like you mentioned, Sue, if it's going on a case cart, we would love for that carton to go with it because you're handling the carton. You're not handling the sterile barrier. So Sue, kind of bridging what you and Kat just mentioned. I guess when we're designing packaging, one of the things we struggle with is what happens in that last hundred yards. How are you, or maybe even Kevin, trained to, to handle packaging? Well, it, it varies. Um, if a carton has 10 items in it, um, those 10 items may or may not come out. However, if it contains, if it's an outer carton, once again, like the cereal box, and there's one item in there, that one item would stay with the in that carton. Now, Kevin, you know, working in surgery, he may have a different opinion. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, that's the thing. When it comes to training, Austin, I think that the, the variability is just so wide, you know, based on the facility you work in, based on your formal training. So, for example, if I went to surgical technologist school, I probably would get a little bit more of a formalized training about how to open and handle packaging. But I was a registered nurse. I came from a nurse, you know, nursing school, nursing background. 
yeah, we might have touched on some of those things when we were, say, opening up fully catheter kits and doing stuff like that or putting IV uh, bandages and dressings on, things like that. Things in the surgical realm are a little bit different in some ways. When you come in as an RN, you're getting trained kind of from the ground up a lot of times in the operating room. Obviously, the nursing school still helps. I'm not saying it's not applicable, but it's different than surgical technologist school where it's all very specific to operating room. Uh, as a nurse, you're kind of subject to whatever that orientation program is in your facility and who maybe your preceptor is and how engaged they are that day when they're teaching you how to open open up the sterile field and things like that. So uh, obviously, like we've mentioned before, you can see in practice all the different uh, things that happen, whether they're good or bad. And when you see them repetitively over time, what's right and wrong when, when it comes to handling and opening packages starts to become a little more muddied because you're just so used to seeing things done uh, all over the gamut, whether it's whether it is right or wrong. You see it so eventually it's like, oh, is that really okay or is it not okay? I'm just going to keep going or whatever. And, you know, sometimes your conscience takes over, which is great, but sometimes your conscience isn't taking over, right? And so mm. we might be doing something wrong and not really know it. And so that's where I, I mentioned the training earlier. I think there's a lot of uh, room for opportunity when it comes to the proper training uh, with packages and things like that, especially in that like last hundred yards into the operating room, back to sterile storage, things like that. Kevin, I, I definitely agree that the practices are varied. Uh, from a surgical tech standpoint, I'm more focused on opening that package aseptically and quickly, right? For those turnovers, trying to get the packages open, the supplies exactly. ready for that next case. So the thought of returning that package uh, to the original or uh, to a safe storage condition is not in my mind. So you're absolutely right on that. And there's so many different practices out there, but that is secondary, third, fourth on the list of, you know, putting that package back. So you're absolutely right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so it sounds like Kip needs to do a training. I think there's some opportunity here for education, absolutely. definitely. I think so. There's a couple no, we can call and tell for that, I'm sure. <laughs> so, so Kevin and Sue and John, I guess, what are some of the things that you guys would love to see as training opportunities? Um, you know, several of the healthcare practitioners, I don't even know if that's the right term, healthcare practitioners <laughs> um, that I've spoken to really, really indicate that their training isn't even on how to handle packaging. It's really how to get it from point A to point B and then get the device into the OR um, so, so it's, I'll say loosely tied to packaging. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, it, it's all of that. It's, uh, you know, understanding what events will, uh, you know, we talk about event related sterility Well, there are events that will compromise packages that you're talking about, things that come from the manufacturer and we need to know about that. There's obvious things like you know, the seal is broken or whatever, or there's holes in the package that are visible. Uh, but there are other practices like things dropping on the floor, or maybe putting it under your armpit and holding it, you know, from point A to point B, things like that, that maybe need to be addressed and shown and illustrated to people 
you might see this, but this is actually poor practice. It could compromise your package, you know, based on whatever study, things like that, uh, where there's actually some universal do's and don'ts around uh, the use and transport of these packages to the OR and back to sterile storage. Interesting. Sorry, Sue, you're saying? Oh, I was just saying the communication that we have opened up through this committee has been wonderful. And I think we just need to communicate more. We were talking earlier about labeling and perhaps labeling about handling and um, which carton is an outer carton, which one is inner, you know, how many, perhaps how many times an item could be handled. I don't know if that's even possible, but I think just opening up the communication and making everybody aware that sterile packages are not magic, that, you know, events can contaminate the product. Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's interesting, too, communication, right? It seems to be a recurring theme and um, one of the elements of packaging that might not be uh, hitting the mark every time. Hannah and I are actually kind of relatively new to the industry, and one thing we're, we've talked about a few times is what are all those different industry organizations out there. Obviously, there's Isham Nation, there's ASTM, AOR, and Amy. Are there any other kind of outlets that KIPP should be focusing on to, to communicate through? I think you about hit them all. And these podcasts will certainly bring, you know, the attention to many people. Austin, I, I also think that there are opportunities with AAMI and ISO and ISTA all of those. I mean, if, if we're going to go through ASTM and we want to help and, you know, do some of those standards through that, AAMI and ISTA are also great uh, standard organizations as well. I mean, ISO, the, the big one for us is ISO 11607 when it comes to sterile device packaging or sterile, sterile medical devices. You know, that's a great one that if, if we can get individuals from those organizations that help to create that if they can get involved in this so that we can look at new revisions of that and how to better implement some of these you know whether it be repetitive handling or communication issues that would be a great outlet and articles help too i think this podcast will help but also writing articles in trade journals such as the uh, process the issue process once again getting the information out so on the flip side, I, I think, you know, as packaging engineers in the healthcare industry, we could definitely be more educated on, you know, what goes on in healthcare systems. W what are some of the best ways where, you know, we could learn as, as packaging engineers what goes on within the last hundred yards? Gosh, I think uh, just doing, you know, making it a part of uh, either your actual formal training in college where you're actually in the facilities and observing what's going on, or maybe it's after college and part of your, part of your job to go and see what's happening at the end of the use cycle of your product and, and understanding whether or not your packaging is being used appropriately. Are the, you know, the symbols, are they communicating the message you want them to? Is it effective? All those things. Um, but I think just getting in there and actually seeing what's going on would go a long way, in my opinion. I'm sure that would help. Also, if you come to some of the meetings of sterile processing, you know, sterile processing organizations such as Isham and talk to 
you know, the attendees and ask them, you know, about the packaging questions that you have, you would certainly get some really good perspectives on what occurs in a healthcare facility. I also think that things like your repetitive handling study are going to show, you know, some different things like, you know, like we talked about earlier, like a surgical tech is focused on aseptic uh, opening of the package, but not not what happens afterwards if they don't use the package or when sterile processing folks are restocking things that weren't used in the operating room. I think, you know, from that point, these studies that you're doing are really going to help uh, educate and open up different areas that we never really thought about. So I think those are great ways to further just uh, bring attention to uh, these different areas. Absolutely. I, I think that's something that's interesting. There's there's different types of nurses um, within the OR theater, right? There's circulating and then um, the nurses that are actually within the sterile field. Um, so, so how are they using the packaging? Actually, quick question. Do you guys, Sue, John, Kevin, ever see um, like the pallet loads or when do you actually first touch the uh, sterile package? Well, you do see, I did see the pallet loads. I can't speak for John and Kevin, but absolutely I would see the pallet loads come in. Um, they would come into the hospital, maybe to the, um, the dock, and sometimes those pallets would come to the breakdown area. And at, at which time we would then, you know, break the cases down and remove the sterile goods from each case to then place them on a cart. And from the cart, we would then take them to the shelf and then place them from the cart onto the shelf. And again, it depended on if we knew the secondary packaging was a shelf carton or not. If we didn't know it was a shelf carton, then we would not use it. Yeah, when I worked in the operating room, I did not get into the supply chain side of things. I did not see things on the dock and, and all of that. It was just in our storage room and in our clean core. And it was on a case cart or in our room. And that's where we really handled the packaging. It wasn't until I started managing sterile processing and a little bit on the material side because of that, uh, that I really started to really look for things uh, down in the supply chain area at the dock, like Sue's mentioned. So it just varies, I think, based on people's individual experience. So it looks like we're just about out of time. You know, we've had some great conversations, lots of things about communication, uh, the devices, how they're handled, you know, things that we've both learned, I think, from each other, you know, from the manufacturer standpoint and on the user standpoint. So great conversations. I can't wait until we get together and meet again in the next podcast. So thank you guys. It was a pleasure. Nice talking to everybody. Yeah, thank you, John. And don't don't forget to look at the handout. We're hoping that that really does help kind of close the gap in our terminology barrier. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thanks again for everyone on the KIPP committee for your commitment to the last 100 yards. That's going to wrap up the show for today. And you know what that means? Well, it means episode number 46 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, fill out the required information, and select the code SECONDARY. 
Again, the code for this episode is secondary. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.